Good morning. The readings from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honourable use? and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, we were saying last week, as we considered those first 13 verses of Romans chapter 9, that this is one of the most challenging sections of all the scriptures for us to actually reconcile together. And so it's a very tough task for me to have to try to do that. And unfortunately, you're left with me doing that and not someone of a considerable sort of more talent. Uh, But nonetheless, that's our task. And the danger is, right, with a passage like this, and I felt this even this week, that because it's difficult, it would be easier in a way to do the sort of Netflix thing and binge through it and just try and cram through the whole thing in, in, in one time. But actually, this is served so much better by taking it section by section. It's a clear and coherent and consistent argument that Paul is developing, and we have to resist our modern urge to sort of binge everything in one go and allow it to sort of sit and to rest, leave us with a few questions week on week that he'll return to. And so this morning we come to two objections that Paul anticipates from what he said in the first 13 verses. But, and this is really important, because he expects these objections to come up I no doubt that he has already heard these before. And he writes this because he knows that this is the kind of thing that people are going to be upset with. But I've no doubt, too, that you might also be wondering this very same question. So, hear me say this now. Don't kid yourself on. These two objections are not intellectual. They are spiritual. They are concerned principally 
with our worship. They reveal our attitude, either entitlement or humility, submission or rebellion. So I have just two points really this morning, but let me just give you a little recap of those first 13 verses in case you weren't there. Um, so that you can kind of get up to speed, or if even you just can't remember it this morning because seven days is enough to forget most of what happened. We're saying that the question that has come up in our journey through Romans is how do I, a rebel by nature, come to faith? And how is it also that though Israel are the people of God, given so many great privileges by God, So many of them have not received Christ. How do we reconcile those two things? How is it that I actually come out of my rebellion? How does the word of God actually take effect within me when I'm not naturally disposed to doing that? And how do we make sense of God's word seeming to have not borne any fruit amongst Israel? Because there's a danger that God's word looks like it's failed. And so there was Paul's proposition in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And that's an important point for Paul to make. Because if anyone has the power over the word of God to resist it, to resist God's call within it, or somehow to be saved without it, then the word of God really doesn't have the power to save anyone. And yet that is the hope of the gospel, is its power. Paul has started off this letter by saying, chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if God constantly calls out to us through the gospel, but has no ability to convince us, he is powerless. So it's important for Paul here to say, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And the answer to both of those problems that we said about my rebellion being overcome and how do we make sense of Israel's rebellion, even though they've been given all of this so much more than ourselves, the answer to both of these problems, which upholds that God's word hasn't failed, is that God sovereignly elects. He chooses people. He calls people to himself. But he doesn't call all. There is a people within a people. Chapter 9, verse 6. Again, not all who are descended from Israel, that's not all the nation, belong to Israel. Not all of the nation is part of the kingdom of God's people. And the precedent that uh, Paul gives us here is two sets of brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. Jacob was the child of promise, not Esau. And it was never just the outward sort of sign and ritual of circumcision, of being part of that nation alone, that made people part of God's people. It was always about a heart of faith. That's how we see who God's people really are. Just one example of many places you can go to is Deuteronomy 10. This is 12 to 16. You see the evidence of the life of faith and the way that it's put so often there is circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. It's not just about this sort of outward ritual. It's about who you really are, what you really love, what you're really motivated by, how you live. The evidence that you're chosen by God is a life of faith. 
So that election, God's choosing, doesn't negate faith, doesn't run against it, but there's a people within a people. But this selection is made not by what we've done. Look at verse uh, 11 there. It tells us that it came to those who were uh, not yet born, having done nothing either good or bad. It speaks of that choice between Jacob and Esau. It happens before they're born, before they've done anything that might have made one more sort of preferable over another. It's not based on performance. And that is good, good news for rebels like me, that it is not based on what I've done. And this was done to achieve God's purposes. Verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He does it because. It's not really for us to know why. And yet, Paul is going to give us a bit of an insight now in these verses into maybe why. He's at least going to sort of put a hypothesis there. But lastly, in this little recap here, it changes the way we view things. It changes the way we view God. It humbles us. It puts us in our right place. We are the recipients of mercy. We've not earned anything we deserve from him. It changes the way we view ourselves, that we have a security, because our salvation is based in him alone. It's not based on my performance. The danger is if it's based in my performance, it's my inability to perform. Isn't that the worry? changes the way we view ourselves. It changes the way we view the world. It gives us hope. Because if God saves rebels like this, that he intervenes in people's lives, that he breaks in uninvited, we have hope that people that we pray for might actually just come to know and love the Lord Jesus. So it changes the way we view things. So there's a little recap. Now let's just have a mental sort of cigarette together before we sort of actually uh, look at these two objections this morning. The first one here is that it is not right. Is it right that God chooses some and not all? I want to show you here a list. Here's just a chance for you to just break from uh, all of that sort of introduction. Give you a few moments. Uh, I wonder if you'll perhaps be able to guess what sort of links all of these people together and I say that knowing full well that there's there's no way that you will Uh, but nonetheless it makes you feel like you're rested for a few moments there will be one more name at the bottom of this list after this morning This is, and I should say this by way of introduction because she'll probably listen to this um, now she knows this is coming. Um, Everybody does this, but not everybody does this in as thorough a way as my mother-in-law. This is a list of people that my mother-in-law has taken an irrational hatred towards. Uh, And this is not exhaustive. As I say, I'm added to the list from today. Uh, but there's others too. There's others too that just won't make any sense to you. So I just, well, there's no point sort of really putting their name on there. And I have for years wondered, uh, what is the algorithm? You know, what takes it to put you on the list? Except for obviously what I'm doing this morning. Um, 
And to be honest, there's not much that really makes sense. There's a few threads and strands, and one of them is the one I actually want to mention. And that is that there is a clear link amongst a number of these people on this second slide here. They're all winners. Oh, actually, that's not been done properly. I don't think all of them are highlighted. Anyway, there's a bunch on that list that are winners, and she doesn't tend to like winners. She prefers a plucky loser, not a serial winner. So people like Pete Sampras, Stephen Hendry, um, Serena Williams, instantly disliked by Wendy because they're winners and a sort of sense of they're full of themselves. You know, they've enjoyed the win too much. They should have just said thank you and gone home. They, they shouldn't sort of revel in it too much. And the serious point is, when you read these verses and you hear one is chosen, one is not. One is elect, one is not. God softens, God hardens. You're, a lot of you, British. And you do what Wendy does. You're inclined to who you perceive to be the underdog. The sort of sense that somebody might not be getting the rub of the green and might not be getting treated fairly is there. And it's strong. And there's part of you that wants to feel bad for them. And so I need you to know that that's there. And I need you to know that that's wrong. <laughs> that these characters aren't underdogs. But I need you to see the contrast also in this passage here. Wendy has a list of people that she has hatred on whom she has hatred. <laughs> but here we see the opposite. God has mercy upon whom he has mercy. What should we say then, Paul says, verse 14. As before, this tells us it's a new section. But it also tells us that there's a conclusion drawn from his previous section, verses 1 to 13. What should we say then about this? And here it is. Here's the question. Is there injustice on God's part? This question sort of holds this section here, verses 14 to 18, together. Much like uh, the question or the point there in, in verse 6, that it's not as though the word of God had failed, held verses 1 to 13 together. This is the theme. Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice? And that, that is a word in the English that won't mean as much to you as it would in the original Greek it's written in. The word there is adikaios, unrighteousness. One of the themes of the book has been about the gospel we've told in chapter 1, revealing the righteousness of God. And what Paul means by that is that the righteousness of God is given to humans. It is given over. There's a status, a legal status. It's a legal word, Dikaio. It speaks of the courtroom, as much of Paul's language has as he's developed this argument. And he said that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It gifts it to humanity. And yet, just a couple of verses later, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all adikaios. You need to know that context. Is there injustice on God's part? Is God himself unrighteous to behave like this? Now you see some of the sense of the accusation that's being given. Is God himself wrong? For behaving like this. It's saying God is not right. God is not good. He is not perfect. All sin believes this. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. But here, it screamed. And so Paul responds emphatically 
by no means. Or it could be, God forbid. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It's an emphatic response. And here's his proposition. God is just in electing to save some, but not all. That's his proposition. Then look at verse 15. He carries on a clear argument here, because now here's his precedent for that. Here's why he feels he's right to argue this. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, and he's turning to Scripture, he's turning to the Old Testament here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The context of this is that Moses is asking for God's presence to go with the people so that the nations around would know that they're his people. How else will they know but that you go with us? And so God agrees. So yes, I will. And he explains why he will with that rationale. Because I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. God will do it, not just because Moses asked it, or that Moses had earned that, or that the people deserved it, but because he wants to do it. So, what does God mean by saying that to Moses? And why does Paul appeal to that as his precedent to defend the justice of God in his election? Sinclair Ferguson uh, thinking about this as the challenge in this passage is is often about the notion of humanity's free will what if what if human beings free will to choose he points out instead we might be better to ask the opposite question here what about God's free will to choose whom he wills why is it put here? Why does Paul appeal to this? Well, I, I think there's two things here. Firstly, about God's nature, that nobody has any leverage on God. You don't have any bargaining power with him. You have nothing you can hold over him that would force his hand. You have no cards that he needs. You can't make him owe you grace. It's his prerogative just to give mercy as he sees fit. It's firstly about God's nature, but it's, it's secondly about the nature of grace itself. It is undeserved. It is, in some senses, not just. It's not giving you what you do deserve, judgment. And yet, it's not unrighteous either. It's about God's nature and the nature of grace. And yet this doesn't stifle prayer, or it ought not to, because I don't know God's will. I bring requests to God, much like Moses does. He requests that God's presence would be with the people. I bring those requests hoping they intersect with God's will. Now here's Paul's conclusion that he wants to highlight for us here verse 16 so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy and in one sense that's a very simple sentence and yet it's quite important you just get the two um, contrasts correct the two things that's being contrasted here is on the one hand humanity and God depends not on human actions but on God that's where the balance of power is. The balance of power is with God and not humanity. 
And then two different sets of actions are contrasted. On the one hand, human will or exertion, decision or action, and mercy. It doesn't depend on you, it depends on God. It doesn't depend on what you do or your ability to decide, but on God's mercifulness, on his nature. The conclusion is, as he's argued for us previously in verses 6 to 13, that God elects. And now Paul wants to return again to that Exodus story to prove this with another biblical precedent. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. You see those two purposes there. And again, what Paul is saying here, and why does he turn to that, is because of the beginning part of that sentence. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. I've called you. I've chosen you. You may think that you've arisen here because of your political savvy and your ability to manoeuvre. I've raised you up. I've brought you here to this place. And why? He has two purposes. To show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does Paul appeal to that verse? Because in a way, that doesn't seem to make too much sense of what he's just been talking about. The nature of how God chooses those whom he does have mercy on. Now he's talking about someone he he doesn't have mercy on because he has mercy on Israel by delivering Israel from Egypt through overpowering Pharaoh. And he does both at the same time, both saving Israel and bringing down Pharaoh that he might show his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's Paul's conclusion. Verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. How does this second bit work? Because maybe that's the part of the sentence that's more challenging, more offensive, isn't it? Him having mercy on whomever he wills, well, that's nice enough. But there's also the part where he hardens whomever he wills too. So there's some context maybe needed there, isn't it? Pharaoh has set himself up as God on earth. He is the global power of the time and he wields that power. He has enslaved Israel. He's exploited them. He's abused them. He's committed genocide against their children. Firstborn males are murdered in order to uh, hinder the nation's growth. And so God warns him ten times, let my people go. If you don't, it doesn't end well for you. Ten times, progressively worse things happening to them, plagues and disasters upon them. Because Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. And the interesting thing is, we're told on the one hand, God hardens Pharaoh's heart numerous times. You can see them there on the screen. And yet, we're also told Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And there are other times we're told that Pharaoh's 
heart is hardened, but we don't know whether it's God or whether it's Pharaoh himself. God is hardening, but that's not running against Pharaoh already being hardened. And if you asked Pharaoh, why was it you didn't let the people go? If we could interview him a bit like a post-match sort of thing this morning, ask Pharaoh, why was it? What was it going through your head? I think it's a safe bet. He would not say that God was anything to do with it. I think he'd tell you about the fact that he would want to maintain his power and status and position, that it looks very weak for an emperor to suddenly let a people go, a people who are not numerous, who are not powerful, who don't have wealth and resources and weapons. Why on earth would you possibly make yourself look so weak as to let them go? Why would you let go of such a cash cow who he's exploited economically? The slave labor alone makes it not worth very letting the people go. I think he would tell you numerous reasons why he decided and say, no, I made that decision. And that would be half the story. But God is also hardening too. We have the both things happening at the same time. We find both simultaneously Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening it. And after constant calls, to some extent restricting the extent of sin there, he's not as bad as he could have been. He could have been even worse. After numerous warnings, after patient endurance, a cliff edge is reached for Pharaoh and for the people. Uh, I have a picture here. I, th- I thought I had this on vinyl, um, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and maybe that sort of evidence is, I was going to bring it out and do a whole thing of, you know, for you sort of Gen Zers, you wouldn't even know sort of what that is. And, you know, how on earth would you sort of take your music around? That's just one record. And what if you want to play sort of 200 more and you want to sort of take a mobile? But that's kind of scuppered all that because I didn't even have the thing. So that's probably the value of Spotify and, and iPhones, isn't it? Uh, this is Fleetwood Mac, Rumours, one of my most sort of favourite albums sort of ever written. Amazing sort of artistry, written in one of the most tumultuous periods of their life. Two of the couples within the band are breaking apart and it's very, very messy. And so one of my favourite songs on this album is called Go Your Own Way. It's a song about letting someone who doesn't actually love you anymore go their own way, but actually somehow that still really hurts. Uh, one part of it here says loving you isn't the right thing to do how can I ever change things that I feel if I could I'd give you my world how can I when you won't take it from me you can go your own way at a certain point God cuts people loose to who to what they truly love Pharaoh has been hardening his heart at a certain point God leaves him loose to his hard heart. He stops even giving him the calls to come back from the cliff edge. Paul has already made this point in this letter, by the way. He said in chapter 1, three times in that chapter, looking at some of the unrighteousness of humanity, God gave them up. That there's a certain point at which God, after having given warnings, calling you back, gives you over to the thing you want. Sometimes the worst judgment of God, people imagine that that would be something sort of directly, and as we call it even in the insurance world, an act of God. Surely the greatest judgment of God is to give you what you want. 
to give you what you want, even though it's not good for you, because you've just reached that point. It tells us in chapter 1 that he gave people up to impurity, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. They reached a certain point where they were left to go their own way. All of this is in a different category to justice, to what's deserved. Here God is operating on mercy for those whom he saves, for those whom he rescues and pulls out of this rebellion, where he's been holding back judgment that we do deserve and instead giving out grace that we don't deserve because nobody deserves it. Let me just go back just to one verse for you back in chapter 3. He's built this whole argument over the whole sort of course of a couple of chapters. In case you're wondering if just this one verse is out of context or isolated, it's really not, but nobody deserves it. Chapter 3, verse 11, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for it. No one understands, no one seeks for God, we're told. All have turned aside. No one would ever choose it. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 tells us about this. The mind apart from the renewal and regeneration of the spirit. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Another place it talks about humanity being at enmity with God. Being at war with God. And yet God graciously chooses some. So summarize this first objection here what God does is right the way of salvation isn't beneath justice it's not less than just but it is beyond justice it's much much better than justice it is in a different category is it right well yes it is but secondly is it fair the second objection is that it's not fair if God is sovereign and he's choosing people are people really responsible can they really be judged for what they do are they not helpless wonder if you've uh, ever seen this picture this is a picture by Pablo Picasso it's very creepy isn't it this is called the old guitarist very haunting at first you think the only thing to this picture is what you see And yet underneath, x-rays have revealed the figure of a woman. Underneath it. Not entirely clear. Wish we could have him here to sort of ask him whether this is intentional, sort of on his part, whether he'd always intended to paint the picture on top of the other and whether it's sort of to be implied that it's a ghost or something else. But anyway, regardless, underneath the top layer, there's another picture going on. There's more to things than what your eyes can see. And this is the point of God's sovereignty and human responsibility for sin. You may only see the top layer. You may not see what's going on underneath. But there's always the both going on at the same time. Here's the complaint, verse 19. Can we really reconcile divine call of God with human responsibility? And then Paul offers a resolution here in verses 20 to 23. And then we get the reasoning in the, in the last sort of five verses that this is a, in order to include Gentiles and Israel. Here's the complaint, verse 19. Can we reconcile human responsibility for sin with salvation by God's divine election and uphold God's righteousness? You will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, you could put it simply, probably, we couldn't help it. Why does he still find fault if we can't help? What we do. There's an attempt there, isn't there, to dislocate, on the one hand, God's will and my responsibility. And so, here's Paul's resolution, verses 20 to 23. It's initially quite brief, stark, stings, but we, we can offer a slightly fuller answer, which, which may soothe a little of that. Look at verse 20 there. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to answer back to God? The word there has a little more to it in the original language. It's, it's about disputing, contradicting. That might be the best word. You're arguing about telling him he's wrong. Telling him he doesn't know better than you. Who are you to do that to God? Uh, here's a cute picture of a dog that might just sort of, you know, set your emotions at better balance. Or not, if you're not into dogs. Uh, dogs are pack animals. They have a strong sense of the sort of organisation chart in any given room. And so if things change, someone goes out, someone comes in, they sometimes try to sort of get themselves higher up on the organisation chart, don't they? So every now and again, a dog needs flooring. Assertively, but kindly, not painfully, pinning them down shows them they are not in charge. And if they had any thoughts to try to get above this station, they ought to lose them. God floors us here. The same way he does to Job. As Job turns to him, chapter 38, verse 4, and starts the question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Here with Lord, who are you to answer back to God? It's about position. It begins, there's a, again, in the original language, this is seen more than, than the English translation. In, in the Greek, it begins, O man, and ends, God, because there's the contrast here. <laughs> oh, man, who are you to think you know better than God? It's about position, it's not your place. To question God. Why? Paul continues. Will what's moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? You are created, not creator. Sometimes we need to know our place. It comes back to accepting God's nature. You know, earlier on where Paul had quoted, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It comes back, actually, to God's fundamental nature and name. God's name that he reveals to Moses, pulls Moses out aside, gives him this task that he's going to help lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into life and into freedom in the wilderness. And Moses says, and quite reasonable, when people ask me who it is who's sending me, who, who do I say? Like, what's your name? And God gives this sort of slightly cryptic name to him of, tell him, 
I am is sending you. And you'll see in the footnotes in your Bible there, if you look later on, it'll say, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will reveal myself as I choose to reveal myself. I am free, unrestrained, unrestricted, in a way no human ever truly is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. But now Paul gives us a bit more information here because he gives us a bit of a clue other than just, you know, shut up and know your place. He's fulfilling two distinct purposes in two different groups at the same time and in harmony with human action. Look, what if he's made one vessel for honoured use and another for dishonourable use? One for honoured use, one for more valuable, one for less valuable use. And Paul is continuing a word play that comes with the word holy. The word holy in the New Testament used to describe God and the people of God uh, in his purposes means to be set apart for noble use. The easiest way to understand that, I always think, is like, you know, in your nana's house, she has the best china. And that's set about, you know, for when someone really important comes never really happens so it just sits there sort of gathering dust but it's the special stuff that's there for special people that's the idea of being holy it's the same idea here one vessel for honored use another for dishonorable use and paul is saying here to us what if paul's putting forward a hypothesis here it's not a sort of absolutely 100 percent convinced proposition it's a hypothesis here's my best working theory in essence And so there's an element of humility in there too, of how he's trying, even Paul is struggling to describe the nature of how God's work works in this way. What if, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, think that's the same as that Old Testament quote that you used before about Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This isn't a new idea, by the way. We've seen it earlier, mentioned it already. Seen this at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, he tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. There's that positive sort of purpose that we see. And yet, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Two purposes going on at the same time through the same means. People being called to salvation and to freedom. People's unrighteousness and rebellion being called out. Both happening. So, the proposition here is, election is a means through which God displays both wrath and patience, grace and justice. How does he do that? Well, we'll explain a little bit more of of how this sort of purpose has worked between Israel and Gentiles specifically in chapter 11, because Paul will handle that at length. But he shows patience in enduring wrongdoing. He shows power in overthrowing evil. He shows wrath 
in his judgment against unrighteousness, ungodliness, injustice. He shows mercy, mercy in forgiving some. To be truly loving, God has to strongly oppose wrongdoing, injustice, and unrighteousness. Why does he do it? Look at verse 23. To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. And just notice, I can't sort of really go into too much detail because the capacity of my knowledge is not sufficient. Um, But notice a slight contrast in the wording there between verse 22 and 23. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Doesn't tell us when, doesn't tell us who. Vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. There's a slight but important difference in those two things, isn't there? That God has directly, actively, beforehand prepared those for mercy. There are those prepared for destruction. We don't actually hear when or exactly how or who does that. To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, prepared beforehand for glory. There's two slightly different elections. One chosen to grace. Other, after constant calls to relent, after patience expressed, finally given what they wanted. Finally allowed, go your own way. R.C. Sproul, commentator, pastor, someone cleverer than me has said this, in the case of the elect, those God saves, God positively intervenes in their lives to rescue them from their corrupt condition. The Holy Spirit changes their hearts of stone to hearts alive to the things of God. In the case of the reprobate, those who are judged, God works negatively insofar as he passes over them. On the one hand, God positively intervenes with those he saves. On the other He's passing over. He leaves them to their own devices, he says, but he also does not intrude in their lives to create fresh evil. They are judged because of the evil already present in them. And now here's Paul's reasoning, verses 24 to 29. We'll close in just a few moments now. Here's his reasoning, and there's two parts to it. Firstly, it enables Gentiles to be included. Why does God work in this way of electing why is it not unjust why is it not unfair it enables gentiles to be included verse 24 even us whom he's called not from jews only but also from gentiles there's his point there that this enables salvation to go out beyond just national sort of boundaries and then he gives us these old testament quotes here from isaiah Verses 25 and 26. Those uh, from Hosea, sorry. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. To her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Election is a means by which the people of God expands far beyond the nation of Israel, to the nations, as God had said. Think back to that quote he's used from the Exodus, given to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you. And he's done that by overthrowing him, overpowering him, and freeing his people from them, even though they had no means and resources themselves. And the amazing thing about it is it says that they came out of Egypt with all their stuff as well. They come out with it clearly evident that God had overpowered this wicked ruler 
But he also said that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. Election is a means by which that is achieved. That those who were not my people can become my people. Those who weren't beloved can be loved. Those who were said, you're not my people, are called sons. Firstly, it allows Gentiles to be included. And then secondly, finally, that Scripture's always said that some of Israel would be saved, not all. Look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel are as, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. God will save those who follow him, who respond in faith to his word. Now, if you think that that might be harsh and that might be him letting go of his people and is this unfair, just look a couple of verses down to verse uh, 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The accusation and the charge that comes before God is, why haven't you saved all? Why choose some and not all? The point here is, thank goodness you chose any. Because the people of Israel know better than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. People they'd look down on. People judged by God for their injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness. But people that Israel had become just like can read of it in the Judges. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah too. Election is a means by which some of Israel could be saved, though not deserving it any more than anybody else. If God didn't elect some, then none would be saved by their performance. They committed the same sins. And so there's a paradox. God's sovereignty doesn't run against human responsibility, but the both are true and the both are happening. So we can't claim we had no choice. We had no chance. Election is right. It is also fair. But then we'll finish here, and the important thing, I think, in a passage like this is on where is, you know, it can be very easy for this to feel like a lot of conceptual things. And what does this sort of really actually do to me sort of Tuesday afternoon when the rubber hits the road and here I am at work and people are frustrating me and I'm feeling overwhelmed with everything around me? What does a passage like this really speak into everyday life? Well, let me give you four things from these truths that Paul has given us here. It's about our mind, it's about our heart, it's about our mouth, it's about our hands. Firstly, it's about our mind. It should produce a submission, an acceptance that sometimes God transcends and confounds our capacity to understand. Whether you understand or not does not really matter. It actually produces a certain humility of allowing God to be who he will be. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It ought to develop a humility 
in our mind. But secondly, it's about our heart. Because the depth of undeserved mercy and compassion revealed should leave us overwhelmed in love for God who has done that for us. Why? Because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The accuser may well come to you and may well bring to mind all of your flaws and failings, but I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I am free to do so. And I'll not be leveraged by any man or even by the evil one. It should lead us in our heart to a love, to that humility in mind. But also, thirdly, it's about our mouth. It should lead us to have a confidence and enthusiasm to share the good news because it doesn't rely on my ability to communicate it, on how eloquent I am with my words, but that God works sovereignly. It should lead to a passion within me. But then lastly, it should affect my hands. It should lead to a compassion, a passion that's directed out with beyond myself because it should lead me to pray big, to pray bold, to pray that this God would do this here. That God would have mercy on whom he would have mercy. That he would renew my mind. That I'd be filled with humility. That he'd soften my heart overwhelm it with love that I'd be filled with a passion to share the hope of this message and that in my hands I'd be driven to prayer pray that God would continue to do this for those around us let's pray and then we will sing a closing song together